Uh, we're back in First Peter. Uh, we took a week or so, a couple weeks off. Uh, I was I was in, I, I was in two weeks ago. Robert uh, kind of closed out our conference uh, last week, and uh, so this week we're back in First Peter. In fact, it uh, looks like we might actually get done by the end of June. Uh, we're going to speed things up a little a little bit. Um, but we'll see a real distinct shift in the letter uh, this week that it really moves uh, to be quite practical. And we'll see uh, here in the very beginning, verse, uh, verse 13, it says, Be subject. And it, it does this again. Uh, it does it again in chapter 2, the first part of 3, and then the first part of 5. It has these, these commands to be subject, to be in submission to. So submission is a big practical theme in his letter uh, for these exiles. But so suffering. So the end of the, pretty much the second half of chapter 3, all of verse 4 is about suffering. So we're really going to be doing submission and suffering uh, for the rest uh, of our time in First Peter. So submission, it's a, it's a dirty word, right? Uh, who, who wants to do this? Who would volunteer uh, to be in a position of submission? Uh, you know, the air we breathe is anti-authoritarian. Uh, and it's part of being a democracy. It's part of the American ethos. You guys know, I mean, our, our country was born out of a rebellion. And I noticed this anti-authoritarian bias uh, the last couple of weeks. So I've been watching The Crown uh, with Jenna. If you haven't watched The Crown, it's about, uh, it's about the queen and her family. And uh, the whole time I'm watching this, I'm thinking, man, this monarchy is so pointless. that uh, They have no real authority to change anything. They just live this easy life where everybody just panters to them. And everybody adores them. They have nothing going for them other than tradition. That's all they got. Where does that come out of? Where does this distaste for authority come out of? It's because of my Americanness. But it's also because of my heart. It's also because I have a deep-seated distrust for all authorities. And the Bible recognizes that and addresses it. And begins to address it in, in this letter to the exiles. So let's read uh, verses 13 to 17 together. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperors as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, so live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. So we'll, I've got three points tonight. Uh, first one, the nature of submission, verses 13 to 15. The nature. Secondly, the secret to submission, verse 16. And then the outworking of submission in verse 17. So the nature of submission, verse uh, 13. It starts with this, uh, this common refrain that I spoke of, uh, be subject. You'll see be subject again in, in 2.18. You'll see it in 3.1. And you'll see it in 5.5. 5. And in this verb that's translated be subject means to be subordinate. It means to be under. It means to submit. And then we see in verse 13, uh, the, the, the big header here, and the object of, our, of the Christian submission is every human institution. You could also read every human creature. And so Peter goes on to give these instances of submission in those verses. Uh, 
We see it, it's slavery 2.18, it's marriage in 3.1, it's the church in 5.5. But the one under our consideration for today is the government. You'll see it there in, in, verse, uh, in, in verses 13 and 14, it's to the emperor or the governor. Now remember Peter's context. Uh, if, if you've not been with us, let me just tell you, that he addresses them as exiles. Uh, they're the minority culture in, in the Roman Empire. The Christians are a small but growing sect of society, and they're called exiles. They're not at home. They need to be reminded that to, to live as exiles, to live as sojourners, uh, they're going to have to realize that they're the minority culture. So how do you live as the minority? And we'll see tonight that he doesn't call them to attempt to be the majority. He calls them to submission. And Peter writes uh, th- this to, to people who are really close, not quite there, but they're really close to going under this large-scale persecution by the emperor, Nero. And in this large-scale persecution, uh, Christians were put on uh, torches at night instead of flame. In this, what would happen is dogs would eat their flesh once they were burnt. It was a gruesome, gruesome, awful thing. And the reason that it switched from being peaceful to very soon being very antagonistic is that this Christian, this, these Christians were growing in number. And they were becoming a threat uh, to to, to the emperor. And they were counterculture. See, the, the rest of the culture, they worshipped the emperor. But not the Christians. The Christians knew that they couldn't worship Nero. That they had to live in a different kind of position towards them. And the position towards them was not antagonism. It was submission. So Nero, Nero wasn't to be worshipped because he wasn't divine. But he was to be submitted to. And this forces all of us to take a really deep look in the mirror, Right? This call to submission to our governing officials, it's easier said than done. It's really hard to do in our democratic, polarized political climate that calls us to either worship or despise our elected officials. We expect our candidate or our our party's candidate, if they are to win, they're going to advance our cause. They're going to heal our society's ills. So what we do in response is we give our time, we give our voice, and we give our money to advance our party and our candidate. But this call to submission, in many ways, it objectifies our relationship to government, and it sets us free. We don't peer at them through this two-party system of American democracy and then then decide whether we're for or against them. Rather, we submit to them whether or not they're a candidate of choice. These governing officials, they're human creatures just like us. They're human creatures just like us, and they're made in God's image. And we're called to respect them and to submit to them. That's the nature of this authority. Submission does not mean worship, but also doesn't mean to despise them, on the other hand. Now, for some of you, you're the revolutionary in the room. You love to use your voice for your cause. You're animated and inspired by what you see as the social and moral ideas of the political world. And you find this call to submission to be very hard, and I understand that. But you're not the first revolutionary to to come up against this call, this call of submission. You know, in Jesus' day, in the early days of the church, there was this group of Jews, and they were called the Zealots. And Zealots, uh, they, they, they saw this grave injustice that the Romans practiced against the Jews. So what they do, they spoke out. But then the teaching of Jesus came along and it cuts across their revolutionary and political expectations. Because when he, when, he, when he talked about his kingship, he didn't talk about it in political terms. 
He didn't lead a revolt against, a revolt against the Romans. And so what happened? The zealots left him. The zealots weren't interested in him any longer. Then you had John the Baptist. John the Baptist, just like Jesus, he had a group of disciples alongside of him. And John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus and they ask this question. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? What, what are they asking? Are you the one who's to come? And it, what they're asking is, are you going to overthrow the Roman government? Are you going to make all things right for the Jewish people? And the response they got baffled them because Jesus didn't use his power to overthrow Rome. And then remember Peter? Remember Jesus was arrested? Remember what Peter did? Peter took out his sword and he cut off one of the Roman guards' ears. And Jesus picked up his ear, put it back on the soldier, and he said this to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So you have the zealots. You've got John the Baptist and his cronies. And then you've got Peter. And they all have a hard time recognizing that Jesus did not fulfill their political expectations. He thought that they looked to Jesus to be the foremost revolutionary. But Jesus wasn't that kind of revolutionary. He wasn't a political revolutionary. Jesus' kind of revolution came through a cross. It came through suffering. See, Jesus didn't come to destroy people, but he came to save them. He did not come to bring judgment, but he came to bear judgment. And friends, our, our culture, this side of heaven, is always going to be full of things to affirm and always going to be full of things to critique. And it's in our critique that we're going to have to be very careful to, 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 to maintain a posture of submission. Think about it. Compared to Nero, we're sitting, we're sitting pretty, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on. The political renovation of this world awaits Jesus' return. And until this return, we're called to submit. The gospel does call us to engage in politics, but we're going to have to be careful not to make the gospel political. It's a tough task. This is the nature of submission. And the call uh, to us is submission to our political leaders. It's not to worship them and it's not to hate them. But how are we going to do that? How are we going to, to walk this fine line? How are we going to go this third way? Not hate, not worship, but submit. Well, that's where verse 16 takes us. It's the secret of submission. Let's let me read it again. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see that first phrase? Live as people who are free and be servants of God. Freedom, slaves. How are you going to put those two things together? Aren't they contradictory? The command is to live as people who are free and to live as servants of God. And our culture, when it thinks about freedom, it thinks about it very different than the Bible does. When our culture talks about freedom, it, it, it talks about you're free if you're free from constraints or restrictions. When our culture talks about freedom, it, it's, it's mutually exclusive from promises, commitments, or obedience. Why is that? Why does our culture do that? Because 
when, when, when you're when you're when you make promises, when you make commitments, when you and, and you commit to obey, it cuts off your options. Our culture sees the more options that you have, the more free you are. Our culture says that if you're interested in maximizing your own welfare, then you should maximize your choices. Our culture says individual freedom is seen as not just good, but worthwhile and essential to our welfare. So how do you maximize freedom? You maximize choice. And friends, this is so deeply embedded in our culture that we don't even see it. When I was thinking about this this week, I thought about the last time um, I went to buy a pair of jeans. And I was completely overwhelmed. Uh, see, I'm, I'm used to going to this place in Northern Kentucky um, called the Gap Outlet, and it was, it's awesome. Um, if you've not been to the Gap Outlet, it's not, a, it's not like an outlet that's on the side of an interstate. It's a real outlet. That stuff's real cheap. Um, it's in a warehouse that's hard to find. But um, it might be shady for all I know. I've been going there my whole life. Um, but I, I couldn't make it. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't going to drive 80 miles this time for a pair of jeans. And uh, so I went uh, to the mall, and what I found out was I had lots of choices. I could go, I could go button fly or zipper fry. I could go uh, comfort, standard, skinny, or boot. Uh, I could have stonewashed, dark, vintage, acid, or dirty. Um, I could have low rise, medium rise, or high waisted. I didn't know high waisted had come uh, to the male gender, but it had. <laughs> there were, so, I mean, the, 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 the wall was unbelievable. How many different pairs? And there's no way they had my size in every combination of those. And so I went and I said, Well, what if, what if I make choices that you guys? And they said, Oh, we'd be glad to order a pair for you. I was like, What happened to just coming in with my width and length and getting, getting a pair of jeans? The stays are out the window. Then I, I saw, I, I, I Googled this this week, and I saw that the average number of salad dressings in the grocery store, 175. The average number of cereals, 273. The average number of toothpastes, 40. It's a lot of choices. Jeans, toothpaste. But then it gets, here's where it might get a little more personal for you. How about your health care options? Healthcare used to be the doctor told you what to do, give you the, would just tell you this is what you need to do. Well, now what doctors do is they give you, here are the benefits and risks to this option, here's the benefits and risks to this option, and here's the benefits and risks to this option. In other words, they put the choice on you. The person who doesn't know anything and the person who knows everything doesn't make the choice for you. But see, this is how many choices we really have. This is how deep it is. This is how much it's in the water. This is how much is embedded into our hearts. We all know the positive effects of this choice. You can get the perfect pair of jeans for yourself. But there's some negative effects I don't think we think about very often. Barry Schwartz is a psychologist, and uh, he wrote this book called The Paradox of Choice. And he says um, that what choice produces uh, that we don't think about, the negative effects, two things. One is dissatisfaction, and the other is paralysis. Paralysis and dissatisfaction. Well, this paralysis thing got me thinking about uh, the movie uh, Hurt Locker. Um, in Hurt Locker, uh, Jeremy Renner plays the main character, and he's been, he's had this really traumatic experience. He's been on tour overseas, um, and he comes home, and he's trying to pick a cereal. 
Uh, if you, I don't expect that you remember this scene, but he's, he's looking at the cereal aisle and he's completely frozen for several seconds. There's just him in the cereal aisle alone. And the way the, the, the way the film goes, it's just it's so solitary. And you could tell he's stiff as a board. He doesn't know what to do. And eventually he just picks the one that's right in front of him. And he walks to the end of the aisle and starts knocking over cereal boxes at the end. He was paralyzed. All these options didn't lead to freedom, but to bondage. The other thing I think it does is that it, is, is that it creates an enormous amount of dissatisfaction. We're less satisfied than ever with the decisions we make because we can always second-guess ourselves and think that we could have made a better choice, that there was a better alternative that we just didn't try. So then, then you know what happens, that it induces regret over our decision, and we will blame ourselves for the choice that we've made. See, this isn't freedom. This is bondage. But the Bible, when it talks about freedom as conceived by our culture, the Bible comes along and says that this, this, this way of looking at freedom is completely impossible. The Bible comes along and says that we're all a slave to something, and that thing that, we, the thing that we're, we're enslaved to is the object of our worship. See, if you worship power, then you're going to be enslaved by it, and you'll do whatever it takes to maintain your power and to increase it. If you worship your kids, then you're going to make your happiness dependent on their happiness. So it makes you totally enslaved to the, the happiness that they experience. See, the object of our worship, it has a spiritual authority over us, and it severely limits our options. For instance, most people in ministry willingly trade in money for reputation. Those of us in, in ministry, we, we will limit our options to gain wealth because we would rather have the reputation and the influence of being in a public position like ministry. Think about the single person. The single person who just dates around or refuses uh, to make commitments. What they're really saying is, I have all the freedom in the world when it comes to relationship. I'm, I just don't want to be tied, tied down by only having one option. Well, do, do, do you see, do, do you see how, what's wrong with that? Don't you see how that's restrictive? This person, in their dating life, they're restricting themselves from long-term relationships. So really, when we think about freedom, we have to think about freedom as having liberating restrictions. That's what biblical freedom is. It's having the right kind of restrictions, the kind that fit your design, the kind that really liberate. This is a, oh, a worn-out... Um, it's a worn-out illustration, but it's good, so I'm going to use it. Uh, think about a fish. If a fish uh, came along and said, I, I, I've got to bust out of this fishbowl. I've got to explore my options. All I've ever known is, uh, is living in water. But what I see from my fishbowl are people having all kinds of fun, other animals having all kinds of fun. Meanwhile, I stay in here all day, every day, doing the same thing, flapping my fins. This is, as, 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 as you all know, which just wouldn't work. If you set the fish free, the fish would die. The restriction of water gives the fish life. The restrictions are good for the fish. So how do we get free? What's our water? What are the right restrictions for us? 
Well, here in verse 16, it says to become slaves to God. See, we can live as free, first part of the verse, because we're slaves to him. See, our water is God, and when we restrict ourselves to him, then we're free. We're his slaves, which requires so much more than just cognitive belief. It requires absolute allegiance. So friends, what are you in bondage to? What's the object of your worship? What will you do anything to get? Now, usually at this point, you talk about these kinds of things, idols, objects of our worship. We usually say things like grades, children, a promotion, a spouse, romance, job, money, and even politics. That's what we'll locate as our thing that we love more than anything else. But you know what's always beneath that? Always. There's four things that are always beneath that. Here they are. Comfort, control, approval, and influence. Comfort, control, approval, and influence. But how, you, how do you know which is your idol of choice? How do you know which of those four it, it kind of occupies that space in your heart? Well, what makes you irritable? What makes you defensive? What makes you judgmental? That's what you're in bondage to. But don't you want to be free? Aren't you tired of living for the approval of everyone else? Aren't you always, aren't you tired of, of trying to have some semblance of control? Like you really can control your calendar. Like you really can control your kids. Like you really can control your 10-year plan. Even comfort. Even if you, even those of you, if you're looking forward to a honeymoon or honeymoon's close by or maybe you've been married and you're looking back at your honeymoon, if I could just live on my honeymoon forever. I don't have to fix any food. Uh, I don't have to make my bed. And the weather would be a lot better than it was here today. Is comfort really going to give you what you want? Maybe it's influence. There's a lot of you in campus ministry. Having that kind of influence in people's lives, is it really doing the trick for you? Really? Are you really free to it? See, friends, the only way we're really free is if we submit ourselves to the only God. See, all other objects of our worship, they enslave us. God's the only object of our worship that really makes us free. That's the secret of submission. Lastly, the outworking of submission. Verse 17. Uh, Verse 17 just has this this series of four imperatives. (laughs) Four commands. So what does it look like to be a slave to God? It looks like that we submit ourselves to these four things. Uh, the first thing is a kind of is a comprehensive term. It says honor everyone. But then the other three kind of explain what honor everyone looks like. Honor everyone really looks like loving the brotherhood. And loving the brotherhood, it, it, that really what's going on there is it's talking about the church. And it says fear God. So it's got a spiritual com- component to it. And honor the emperor. So it's got a political. So it's got a political, a spiritual, and this is a big word, ecclesial. Ecclesial is just a fancy word for church. 
And the thrust of these exhortations are, is really clear. Christians must live well by giving each type of relationship its due. Christians live well by giving each of these relationships its due. We don't have the convenience of saying, you know what, I'm just going to be spiritual. The fear of God thing I got, uh, honor the emperor, I'm out. I'd rather worship or despise the emperor. Uh, loving the brotherhood, uh, the ecclesial, the church part, it's just me and God, why do I need this? But in fact, all three of these really are contracts, and all three of these require our responsibility. One of them is citizens. That's honor the emperor. You have a, you, we all have obligations as citizens. Then you have church members. We have to submit to the brotherhood. That's what we're going to see in chapter 5. And as Christians, we have to submit to God. So application, <laughs> what does the outworking of submission look like? It means don't be afraid of making commitments. See, apparently, according to the scriptures, we can make commitments and be free. Let me take it a step further. We're free because we make these commitments. We're in bondage when we don't make these commitments. But how are we going to do that? How are we going to make these kind of commitments to society and the church and to God? How are we going to overcome the spirit of our age that's allergic to authority, that's averse to commitment, and that's anti-service? To us, being subject, verse 13, just it sounds unappealing at best and impossible at worst. So how are we going to do this? Well, the gospel calls us to look outside ourselves. We don't have within us what it's going to take to fulfill these commands. We don't know the right strategies. We don't have the motivation. We don't have the fuel to help us make and then keep these commitments that lead to freedom. Instead, we come up woefully short and the cycle of our shame continues. We can't submit to the proper authorities in our own strength. If you do submit to these authorities in your own strength, what's going to happen is, is, is that you're going to do so out of your own self-interest. And you're going to use God, you're going to use politics, and you're going to use the church to get what you want. That's one option. So you can submit to all these in your own strength, or you can run from all of them because you hate authority. But you know, both will take you? Bondage. You won't be free. The freedom that you so desperately want, you can't have it. See, I can't give you information on how to get free. There's no seven steps. There's not three. A manual for freedom doesn't exist. But you know what does? A person. This person, Jesus Christ, <laughs> he affects our salvation. He's the only one who can set us free. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's bad news, isn't it? But the good news was back in verse 2, where it says, the, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, we can only submit to God's law, God's commands, like those in 1 Peter 2.17, when we've been set free from the law of the Spirit of life. We've been set free by the law of the Spirit of life. 
Friends, Jesus came as a servant to God and his fellow man. Think about Jesus. His service to his father, his fear to his father, that, that command in verse 17, was altogether perfect. He followed it perfectly. He submitted himself to the brotherhood by washing their very feet. He even submitted himself to the Roman authorities. He didn't worship them, nor did he lead an uprising against them. He simply submitted to them. So this perfect record of submission, he now imputes to us for free. He now gives to us for free. His righteous character in all his submission, in all that he does, in his perfect submission to the Father, to, to, to the governing authorities, and to his fellow man, he did perfectly with his atoning death, his sinlessness. And now this is credited to us for free by grace alone. So now our account's full. But it doesn't leave you and I off the hook. What it does, <laughs> this fullness in our account frees us to now obey these commands. We now can obey these not out of fear if God's going to accept us or not. We're going to do these because we already have his acceptance. That's the good news. But let me get practical here at the end. Uh, let me apply this specifically and give us some handles on what it might look like to carry out verse 17. Um, you, as we said, the first one kind of stands for the whole, and the last part, the last three are a little more specific. So we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about church, we're talking about government, and we're talking about the Lord. Uh, so first, uh, the church, love the brotherhood. Uh, love the brotherhood means a whole lot more than coming in here for 80 minutes. If your idea of what it means to be a part of the church is to come in here for 80 minutes, let me ask you, are you really, can you really love the brotherhood? Can you really love people? Can you really have relationships if you're just here for 80 minutes? It sounds like more like rubbing shoulders with the brotherhood than loving the brotherhood. See, here at our church, we, we want this to become a place where you are fully known and you fully know other people and you're loved and accepted anyways. But that can only happen if you dig in and build real relationships here. Uh, one of our growth strategies here as a church <laughs> is that you never leave. Uh, we're hoping to close the back door so that this doesn't just come a place that you come and see if does this meet your likings? Is this a consumable religious good product that I prefer? Uh, we want this to play, be a place where this is like family for you. So to love the brotherhood means to make this much more than a worship service in your life. You might be wondering, well, gosh, Marsh, we didn't have any, uh, the calendar for our church. I mean, there's not in the back. The announcement's just to give stuff to, to the under-resource. Like, how are we supposed to get around one another? I don't know. Ask somebody for their phone number and take them to lunch. The dude next to you would love a free lunch. Why don't you do it for him? Love the brotherhood. Secondly, government. This is a juicy one for our context, uh, especially 2017. And I suspect that most of us, uh, now, I wouldn't say most, all of us, we either float between worshiping uh, the, the, the political leaders or we have this utter disdain for our political leaders. Maybe you find more hope in our current leaders than you ever have, or you find more reason to be troubled than you ever had. And what this call to submission does to us, it critiques both sides. It makes us, it, it's a call to repentance first and foremost. And then we're going to have to move out in faith and what it looks like to submit to our leaders. So the government, 
the church, and lastly, the Lord. I love that uh, it said fear. <laughs> it couldn't say fear the emperor. It couldn't say fear the brotherhood. Because fearing the emperor or fearing the brotherhood would equate to worshiping them, and that would be idolatry. But fear, biblically speaking, um, does not mean to be afraid of a person like we should be afraid of a person who's holding a gun to our head. That's not what fear means. Fear means reverence and awe. So to fear someone or to fear something is to obey because of the weightiness of who and what that person is. So to fear God in the context of this passage is to submit to the institution and people that he calls us to submit to. Why? Because of our subjection to him and him alone. God is the only one worthy of our ultimate submission because God purchased your soul by his blood and is worthy of our respect and worthy of obeying what he commands us to do. We're free to do it. Let's pray. Father, this whole idea of submission is hard for us. And we might say, you, you, we submit to the Lord, but all these other things we can't submit to. And Lord, you come in our face and you tell us that that's just off. And so Lord, I pray that you would lead us to repentance. And Lord, I pray that we would have faith to fall into your arms to allow you to show us the steps forward and what it looks like to live this life of submission to every human institution. We pray these things in your name. Amen.